Welcome to Outspoken, where we dive deep into the topics and intersection of technology, money, business, and passion. I'm your host, Shana Cosgrove. Part of growing up was trying to understand your identity. In the early part of my career, frankly, my identity was me just trying to figure out how to fit in. So I watched what everybody else did, and I did that. If you go and say, hey, I want to go find my supplemental, mentor, and you go talk to somebody, you know, before you do that, think about what you want to get out of it. Be ready to have that candid conversation, not just like, hey, let's meet twice a month and talk about what's going on. What does it mean to say, I'm going to help you learn how to work in this business world versus being more accepting of the different kinds of ways that people want to work together and collaborate together and exist? This podcast is sponsored by Nyla Technology Solutions, an SBA-certified 8A, hub-zone, woman-owned small business specializing in full-stack software engineering and data science services to the U.S. government. Our innovative solutions are built to match the speed of mission. For more information, partnering opportunities, and new job openings, please visit our website, www.nyla.io. Well, thank you for being here on a Friday afternoon. Thank you for having me, Shana. This is an honor. Are you still in D.C.? We live in D.C. Two months before the pandemic happened, we moved to a bigger house, but we're in Mount Pleasant instead of Adams Morgan. We only moved four tenths of a mile away, but we we just got a much bigger house, a lot more room for the kids. That's cool. You have three children, right? Three, yeah. I got a four-year-old boy and uh, girls that are six and nine, and they all go to the same school. So it's just like one drop off, one pick up. Does your wife work from home entirely too? She does. We, we both travel. We both go to meetings. Still a couple days a week, we're both at home working together. Do you remember how we met at all? It's been a long time since I've seen you. Yeah. I mean, I remember you were a contractor, right? In the government and you're, you're in T-Group working on a program. I can't remember the name of the program, but I remember every time I said it, you'd, you'd be in my office. You were sort of building a competing product. You were building it with developers who sat right there doing exactly what you told them. So you loved your product. (laughs) And I was building something that you were supposed to like. (laughs) Yes. The meetings will continue until the product is liked. I remember that. I remember that statement. (laughs) I think you were already a senior then. Were you a senior? I became a senior towards the end of my time there. So I don't know what I was at, at that point. I think I was just a 15 at that point. I assume knowing you, you probably always had a large degree of confidence. You talk with a great degree of confidence and passion. And even though you repeatedly told me I was wrong and my product sucked, I was able to find a mission customer where we provided very clear value. And it was your customer. That brought me great joy. The whole thing brings me great joy to this very day. So, yeah. <laughs> we were developing a product that was monitoring something, right? And everyone is like, you need every 15 minutes, you need every 15 minutes. And what happened is we were supposed to alert if something happened. And it was a little too sensitive. And the issue was, it's not that the alerting was wrong. It's that People couldn't react. It was too much information. And at the end of the day, they didn't need the information. They needed, what do I do? It happened that we took the data, I think from your system, which was daily, 
And then when we were able to look at what happened over the day and provide kind of a ranking of less than seven things that might be a problem, that was the real change. And it was so interesting because the requirement was every 15 minutes. It's got to be every 15 minutes. got to be every 15 minutes. And even 15 minutes was probably slow because these were big deal, very important, mission-critical things that we were looking at. But uh, it was interesting that that very coarse fidelity of a day was what they really needed. You were describing what's going on in the world today. The thing you and I were working on, I would say, is what we now in the world call IT ops and AI ops. And guess what? People are overloaded with data and information and they don't know how to make decisions on it. And I think what we're working on was well ahead of its time, frankly. Multi-billion dollar industry. So if we'd taken that idea and started our own company, we would be not working anymore. Well, we were serving the U.S. government at the time, (laughs) which I will never regret doing. And I still uh, do to this day, and you do as well. The other thing I remember very much about you that I want everyone in this podcast to know is that once you became a senior, you had an office in the big four. And I periodically would come by and say hello. And one time I came by and you had just gone to a training or a talk about body language. You gave a talk about like shoulders back and trying to be open and how when you're receiving information, you want to actually have an open body language with like kind of palms up and shoulders down. So sometimes in meetings when I get like really upset or combative or I'm feeling that way, I'm feeling very flooded. I remember to like, relax and show an open body language, which then not only conveys to others that, okay, I'm going to be on a receiving mode, but it does change your physical body posture, also changes your emotions and what you then do. Isn't it amazing, those little things? I still use that to this very day. I still tell lots of people about it. So many people say, oh, you know, people are natural leaders, right? Or they're just really good at what they do. And I say, you could train yourself in anything. I think it's learning and practicing. But I talk to people all the time about like, take up space, have an open posture, mirror the person you're talking to, right? Because it'll make them more comfortable. All these things matter in terms of, you know, relationships and leadership. Did you go to work for the NSA straight after college? I started at the NSA in high school. You did? I did. We had a program, a high school mentor program. A couple days a week, instead of going to my last class in high school, I actually drove to the agency and I worked there. And so I got my clearance almost right before I could drive, right? So I've had a clearance since I was 16 years old. I worked uh, in an office and I did some data analysis and, and a little bit of programming. I got to know and meet a lot of great people. Fast forward, I go to college two years in. I decided I want to do a co op. Uh, and that, that was really kind of my major start into the agency. And I I put in an application to tell you, you know, you have to apply like a year in advance, right? Because of all the security clearance process and all that stuff. I put in an application and three weeks later, they called me. They said, when do you want to start? And I was like, well, I don't want to start for another year. And they're like, all right, we'll call you back in a year. And then uh, I co-opt and right after that, uh, you know, went straight there full time after college and spent 20 some years there. How did you get that high school program? How did that even happen? It was a physics teacher of mine in high school. I went to high school in Howard County, so close to where the facilities are. My physics teacher handed me this brochure and said, hey, you should consider doing this. 
I didn't know anything about this place. I was just like, okay, this seems kind of cool. And I, I applied and at 16, they're putting me on a polygraph and asking me if I've ever revealed classified information. Not that I ever knew any classified information at the age of 16. And somehow I got cleared, right? And I walked into the uh, world of the intelligence community. Had you heard of NSA before you showed up there? No. What'd your parents think of this? My parents were excited, right? Because they were like, oh, he's getting experience, right? This is going to be really good for his future. They were really excited. I don't remember very much, but I remember always being scared of what I could and couldn't say because they put the fear of, of death into you when you take the oath and sign for your clearances. So I didn't tell them much. They didn't ask much. You know, they were really happy, though. My dad worked in, uh, in local government. They were excited. They, it's a rewarding field to be in, and uh, they were pretty proud. What did your dad do in local government? He worked at the local water utility. He was a mechanical engineer at the WSSC, which supplies water to PG County. And was your mom an engineer, too? My mom was a statistician. She worked at a uh, company that did ratings for like television and radio. Was it in the old mainframe computers? I mean, I remember her bringing home these punch cards that I like she would just bring for us to play with. Yeah. But yes, punch cards, mainframes, diaries where they they would send people stuff and and write down all the things you watch. And then they would turn that into into data and sell it to advertising companies. Your mentoring program in high school, did that influence you to study electrical engineering? How did that come about? No, my parents said they figured out they knew I was going to be an engineer when I was pretty little. I was always like into the how and doing things with my hands. Like I would get toys and I would just take them apart to see how they worked and then break them. My parents knew before I did, but that I was going to be an engineer and going to engineering when I was really young. But electrical, how'd you pick electrical and say not computer science? Well, back in the day when I was going to college, they didn't, computer engineering was kind of a new thing, right? So you had the engineering department had the electrical engineering program and you had a computer science department and neither did two crossed, really. I was always interested in electricity and I think I had an act for it. And your first year of college, you declare engineering and you take kind of a variety of courses. One of them was uh, engineering uh, NEE 204, basic circuit theory. And folks were failing out of that class left and right, and I was passing every test. So I was like, okay, I think I, I, think I got this. This is the one for me. Yeah. Uh, and that's how I ended up being an electrical engineer. You became a senior at a relatively young age compared to most seniors. What was your secret to becoming a senior so quickly relative to your very talented peers? I don't have a good answer for that. I'd like to think that I worked really hard. I know I had some great mentors when I was there and advocates. It's all about getting the right opportunities and then doing the right thing in those opportunities and working really hard. And then frankly, I think part of it is just a little bit of luck. Somehow all those things kind of came together and I became a senior. Do you have advice on how to find a very good mentor? It took a while because I think sometimes there's just not a good fit. And sometimes people don't know what they want to get out of having a mentor. And I think the best mentor relationships I had were ones where we were both getting something out of the relationship and the discussion. I had a fantastic one. I won't name names, but we had a great relationship, learned a lot. I feel like I could have gone to him with about anything. And then he ended up getting promoted into a more senior position and just ended up getting really busy. And so just the amount of time available, you know, kind of didn't work out. But I I think you, if you go and say, hey, I want to go find myself a mentor and you go talk to somebody, you know, before you do that, think about what you want to get out of it. Think about what's important to you. And be ready to have that candid conversation, not just like, hey, let's meet twice a month and talk about what's going on. On the flip side, when I'm mentoring people, I ask them very specifically, if there's something you want, 
don't beat around the bush, right? Ask. And if I can do it, I will. If I can't, we'll talk about it, right? And we'll understand, you know, why and what maybe we could do. Having a plan, I think, is a really key piece to get a mentor. Where did you figure out that you should have a plan? I don't know that I ever necessarily had a plan. I, I mean, I I was a happy engineer on the lab bench out of college building systems. I got to deploy them out in the field sometimes. One day, a boss said, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, what do you mean? I'm growing up, right? Like, this is, <laughs> I've arrived. And uh, he sort of said, hey, you know, you should really consider, right? Like, going to try this other thing. Came off the lab bench, and I worked on different kinds of projects. I moved into operations for a little while, and I, I moved into leadership. All along the way, I just collected a lot of different experiences. And for a long time, I still didn't really have the answer of, you know, what I wanted to be when I grew up, but it's worked fine for quite a long time. I think it was just about collecting experiences, right? I, I, I would work in an organization for two or three years, and I go, hey, you know, here's something I haven't done before, X. Let me go see if I can go get a job doing X. Or I'd really like to leave this agency for a little while and go work at another one. And I would just try and figure out how to do that. You have two master's degrees. Most people get one if they get one at all. <laughs> how did it end up that you have two? So the first one is a master's in electrical engineering, which is basically two more years of electrical engineering school. Right? It's very technical, a lot more computer science during my master's than I did uh, during my bachelor's. So I think that was to develop my technical depth. But you can learn a lot of things. Like You're not necessarily born into things, in my opinion. Uh, you can learn a lot. And I went back and got a degree in engineering management because I, I didn't want to go to business school. Like I didn't want like a an MBA business style degree, but there's a lot to running a project or a program or a team or an organization, especially if you're doing it in an engineering organization. And it actually started that I actually just took a class. Like I wasn't degree seeking. I, I signed up for a class and I really liked it. And then I signed up for another one. And I really liked it. And then I was like five classes in and, and uh, my professor was like, you know, five more and you'll have the degree. <laughs> and I was like, oh, cool. Uh, but then I actually, I hadn't applied to be a degree seeking student. And so like I had to go back and appeal to have them count all of my other classes. But, oh, wow. So I rounded it out and uh, I learned a tremendous amount about organizational design, change, you know, leading, leadership, straight up project and program management, right? They don't teach you that in electrical engineering college. And those skills, I think, were extremely valuable, just as valuable as the technical skills I got in school. Did you get your electrical engineering degree in a part-time program where you were able to work for 20 hours and work on your master's as well? Yes. I did some at night, and then I did some on a part-time program where I, I went to school part-time and I worked part-time. I think it was uh, my second degree. I actually got to take six months off straight from work to basically be a full-time student and, and awesome. uh, finish up that degree. Yeah, it was fantastic. Were you married with a kid at the time? I had no children when I was in school. No, okay. I wasn't married. Yeah, when I was in school. Where did you meet your wife? I met her at work. I'll tell you the funny story. She was an intern in my office. And <laughs> I, know, I know exactly what you're thinking right now. But that did not happen. I love um, it so much. But we ended up having some friends in common. So every once in a while, I would see her out through mutual friends. And I think it was about two years after she was an intern in my office that we ended up dating. And then and I got married and have three children. How much younger is she? She is five years younger than me. At that agency, there's not a lot of Southeast Asian people. Was that 
unusual for you? Did, how did you feel any difference? Are you looking for more from your career than just a paycheck? At Nyla, we offer that and so much more. Join us for a career where your growth is our priority with generous pay, unbeatable benefits, and a supportive environment that cheers on your every achievement. We're scouting for top-tier data scientists, software engineers ready for something bigger. Ready to be a part of a company that cares about where you're going? We're ready for you. Check us out at nylatechnologysolutions.com or drop us a line at hello at nyla.io. Yes. There weren't a lot of people that looked like me. And when I started in that agency when I was 16, you know, I don't think there were a lot of minorities at all. Right. I know. It's a very white place. Frankly, I think, you know, part of growing up was trying to understand your identity. In the early part of my career, uh, frankly, my identity was me just trying to figure out how to fit in, right? So I watched what everybody else did and I did that. And meanwhile, right, at at home, my parents immigrated, I'm first generation. That identity didn't usually come to work with me. It was many, many years after that I started to think through like what that really meant and what does diversity mean, right, in the organization? and, And what does it mean that there's not a lot of people that look like me? And every once in a while, I'd find somebody. I'd find a senior exec that looked like me, and I'd, I'd like I'd, I'd chase him down the hallway, right? And I'd be like, "Hey, I, you know, I want to meet you. I want to learn about your story. Right? I want to learn how you got here. I want to see if you ever felt the way I did, right? And some of the things that were going on in my head." And I think it was something towards the end of my career that I was always conscious of, of like, "Well, now I'm in that senior seat, right? And people are looking at me. What do I do to make it so that people are comfortable, so that we have more diversity, right? And that." People don't feel like they can't advance in in the government. In the beginning, did you feel like you had to hide some part of you away? I would never say I felt like I had to hide it away. I think it was just subconsciously. Like I came into work and I had a work life that was just me trying to fit in. I watched what people did in meetings and I did what they did, right? I looked at how people created ideas and I did what they did. I was always a little bit contrarian, as you probably knew. So I looked at the contrarians and said, how do they work and operate, right? And didn't really take stock of like, what about my upbringing and my values? And like, how do I interlace that right into how I conduct myself? But as time went on, I think I just got more comfortable and more aware of what I was doing. And uh, I felt like I came into my own skin, right? Five or six years into my career is how long that took. I still feel, and of course, I am not the best judge as a white woman, that, but I still feel like a lot of the DEI is just focused on making sure the right people are in the room, but not on the inclusion part and actually keeping them. I still feel like we have so far to go. And again, I say this from my perspective of, yeah, there aren't a lot of young women in computer science. There remain a very few number of women graduating from computer science even today. And then someone who loves fashion, right? And thinks differently and doesn't look the part. So it wasn't much less gender. It was also, I didn't look and act like all the others. And as much as I tried to fit that role, it was also very inauthentic and it comes across inauthentic. We have so far to go, much less letting people in the room, the diversity, but the inclusion 
and then there is the equity, but like, it's hard to give the equity if you're not even letting people get to the same level of skills that other people are actively being encouraged to get to. Sometimes there's like, well, we don't have any qualified candidates. That's because it's been squashed or the resources or encouragement haven't been given at the same rate and level. As I am creating my own organization, how do I let people feel that they can be themselves? And sometimes in an environment, there's a balance of, yes, you should watch and listen to others and watch and see who's out there. But there's a balance of being like, you need to polish and learn things and grow as a leader and grow as a professional and as a person. But there's parts of each individual that are different that make up the high value that they bring. And so while we all want to fit in, that's not actually what makes it better. It's really, really true. You remind me of a story of a, a woman I was mentoring. You actually introduced me to her. And I remember I, I like I always have a book, right? So before mentoring session, I kind of look at my book and I review what happened the last time and like what we talked about. At the end of a meeting, I made a note because she always apolog- she apologized for everything. I'd be like, welcome, come in, close the door. She's like, oh, sorry. And I was like, don't apologize, close the door, right? That's kind of weird. And I made a note and I said, you know, I got it. Next time I see her, I got to talk to her about not apologizing so much. Later that day, I went home and I ended up reading this article about men trying to coach women into how to act like men. I mean, the timing was amazing because it was basically like, who do you think you are to tell her to stop apologizing? Why don't you go around and tell all the men that women apologize and then we just need to deal with it? And so then I got really flustered and I had no idea what to do, right? So it's a month later, she's coming for you know another session and I just gave her the article and I was like, here, you read this. I don't really know what to tell you, right? But it is so true. It is so true that you have to think a lot about like, what does it mean to say, I'm going to help you learn how to work in this business world versus being more accepting of the different kinds of ways that people want to work together and collaborate together and exist. I don't have a good answer. I often say, if you're uncomfortable, then you're probably doing it right. Right. But if you're really comfortable and like everything's just kind of going well, then maybe you might want to sort of rethink it. And I'm uncomfortable a lot. So I feel like that's a good sign for me. I think that's a great sign of leadership or progress, right? Is if you're comfortable, you're not growing. The other thing I think about is, especially as now a older woman, when I'm telling these younger women, I mean, the context in which I came up is so wildly different than their environment, the world culture, the local culture, the fact that we are having people who are not identifying gender. I mean, That wasn't even something that could be talked about. To even get to that point, no one even came out if they were different, right? And the way I grew up and the formality of it and the how we didn't talk about things, it's just so wild. So sometimes I feel so antiquated even giving advice because my advice is from how I had to face it. And hopefully they're not experiencing kind of some of the same things. Or at least I'm like, I pray that these scenarios that I faced are not applicable to you. There's probably so many parallels in the world that you know we grew up in to what's going on now. And it is fantastic, right, to see where we are today versus where we were in terms of just openness and, and inclusion and all those kinds of things and all of our experiences, right, and all of our advice collectively, right, whether you're just starting out in the workplace or you've been there for a long time are really critical to try and continue the progress that we've 
been making for so long. You, after how many years, 20 years, you left the agency and you did a tour at National Counterterrorism Center? Yes. I went on a joint duty assignment at the National Counterterrorism Center. Kind of one of those things of like, hey, I want to go try something different. I want to go experience a different culture. I went outside of the agency to another intel organization for a couple of years. And that was my first experience in a very, very different culture. Right? Keep in mind, all this time I've had one employer basically my whole life. One way of doing things, right? One way of behaving, one way of business, one way of meetings, one way of budget. And the experience I had was so amazing. It made me a much better employee. It made me think about the context of the mission that we have in the intelligence community in a whole different way. And I think I just got to that point where I was like, hey, okay, it's time for me to go out of my agency again and go do something different. I ended up at the National Counterterrorism Center working for a great colleague that I'd known for a while. And again, just had this great experience uh, learning something very different working in an organization that was very different, with a culture that was very different, with people that were very different. So it was fantastic. So you did a JDA, that's joint duty assignment, and then you went to the national... So you did two different things. I basically did two different joint duty assignments. One was at a different IC agency in like the 2001 or 2002 timeframe. And then the National Counterterrorism Center was 2016, 2017 timeframe. What agency is the National Counterterrorism Center associated with? They're part of the DNI, so the Directorate of National Intelligence. And how long has the National Counterterrorism Organization even existed? NCTC was established after 9-11, so I don't remember the exact year that it was. But if you remember the 9-11 Commission report, the famous tagline there was failure to connect the dots. And so Congress passed legislation to create NCTC as a clearinghouse for counterterrorism data. And the issue was, like, there was a little piece of terrorism-related information in one agency and a little piece in another, and they didn't cross. And if you actually cross those two pieces of data together, there may have been some possibility that we would have uncovered more information about you know, our adversaries. And so NTTC acts as a whole of government clearinghouse for counterterrorism information. It's authorized to hold and possess all counterterrorism information in the entire United States government. And then they have analysts and data scientists and a whole host of people who take a look at that data and use it to help protect and defend the homeland. What was your role there? I was the director of the Office of Data Strategy and Innovation. So long story short, that was the big data program. We had data scientists. We had responsibility kind of for policy and compliance of all the different kinds of data that we had. We had to meet our attorney general regulatory guidelines. And then we had worked with our IT partner on the technical systems that kind of helped us underpin how you use all this data and run large-scale analytics and try and basically take out, identify indicators of terrorism or terrorist behavior in little bits of data that you're trying to connect one after the other. So was this in a cloud-based architecture at the time or was it pre-cloud-based architecture? Yeah, it was a pre-cloud-based architecture. You know, because of the authorities, the access to data varied depending on the source of data and the intended and authorized use. So I'd say it was kind of a, a loose federation of capabilities that analysts and data scientists used to look at the data. So where were you when 9-11 happened? When 9-11 happened, I was in the basement of the research and engineering building working on a project. How old were you? 24, 23. And yeah, I remember watching, you know, all of a sudden the TV's on and we're watching what happens. You know, then we evacuated uh, the buildings and we all kind of left. And then uh, later that night, I actually got called back and, and came back to try and help fight the fight. 
Where did you live at the time? I lived in Baltimore at the time, in the city, in Federal Hill. Where in Fed Hill? It was Belt Street, which is like right across from Harborview, basically. I think it took all of us a while to process, right, what had happened. And, you know, first people were trying to figure out what it was and what was it terrorism, you know, what happened. It was like a little bit of a moment there to go, wow, this is kind of one of the reasons that we're here, right? This is one of the reasons we have an intelligence community. And, you know, I was certainly glad that I was there. I think it shaped the next 12 to 15 years of my life. I take a step back and I look now at where we are. All of the investments that we've made to protect the homeland, right? NCTC and increased security. And you look at it and you go, man, that was a moment, right? In, in America. And I think we, you know, we rose up like we've never done before. And, I, you know, certainly the homeland's a lot safer than it was back then. So when you went to NCTC, you were not an NSA civilian anymore? I was. So then you go back to NSA? Sort of. We had our third kid when I was at NCTC. And I went on on paternity leave and I uh, didn't come back. All employers' nightmares, by the way. Just kidding. (laughs) Someone's going to take the leave and then never come back. But go ahead. At that time, actually, you had to just take your built-up annual leave. That is true, except I was very fortunate that with each of my three children, when they were born, I took a six-month leave of absence and stayed at home and had a chance to watch my kids grow up a little bit. Let's talk about that. That's almost unheard of at that time, particularly at the agency that wasn't even giving women even six or eight weeks, right? Women still had to take their annual leave and they had to go under a Family Medical Leave Act. So what prompted you to do that? Was there a mentor? Was it self-driven? It was definitely self-driven. The day I was born, my dad lost his job. And so obviously I don't remember it, but he actually took care of me for the first six months uh, that I was born because my mom had to go back to work pretty quickly. And it always stuck into me about like, what would that time be like? What would that mean to me? You know, would I ever regret doing that? And obviously the answer is no. And so when I had my first, I talked to the boss man, right? And said, hey, uh, I really want to do this. Here's my plan for how to do this. Uh, You know, I've got a little vacation. You need to approve leave without pay. And we're going to make this work. And they were really, really supportive. I was really, really so lucky to be able to do it. And when the second one came around, it was like a no-brainer, right? It was like, hey, I have precedent, right? I've done this before. You can't say no to me. And I think the other benefit was that at that time, the second go-around, I was a senior. And a lot of the junior workforce, they were all thinking like, wait a minute, why do I want to be a senior? I have terrible work-life balance. I work all the time. And so I think I got held up a little bit as like the poster child because anytime someone said that, they'd say, you need to go talk to Vimesh Patel. Right. And they come to my office and they'd be like, well, I complained about work-life balance. And they told me to come see you. Right. <laughs> and I would tell them my story and they'd be like, wow, okay, it can be done. Right. Well, why didn't other people do it? I don't know why they didn't. I did. Maybe I was lucky. Right. Like, like maybe other people tried and, and they all got told no, but I really wanted to do it. And, and I did it. Uh, and it was awesome. Or they're worried that uh, it would affect their career potentially too, that even if they took it, that their career might not recover, that the view of of them might not recover. And I I say that as probably more of a woman thing where they're afraid to to take it because then they're viewed as not as into their career. When I gave birth to our first child, Brian took 12 weeks of leave 
And then for our second child as well, because he was government the whole time. And so he had, like you, he had worked for the government since college and had a huge amount of leave built up. And I was like, well, I'm a contractor. If I don't, if I don't go to work, I'm not getting paid and uh, our money's running out. So he stayed home. Do you feel that you are in a 50-50 relationship with your wife and as a parent? How do you feel you are as a working dad parent with a working wife? Nancy and I are are really good partners. She is in tech and career-driven and motivated, and we both have busy days and schedules. But I think, you know, when it comes to taking care of our kids and running our household, I'd say it's pretty close to, to down the middle. She usually drops them off and I pick them up. We're each making dinner half the time in the week. You know, if I've got to work late, I've had a lot of meetings these last three days and I was out uh, pretty late. She's got me covered. And uh, likewise, you know, she travels and has things to do as well. We sort of have a shared calendar and the first one who puts something on the calendar wins, right? So if you've got a trip and you need to be away, then uh, you throw it on the calendar and, and it's yours, right? It's been tough to maintain two busy working professionals and, and then raise three kids and kind of do it the way that we want to. But somehow every day we're like, wow, we made this work, <laughs> right? And every day is like a little bit of a cheer when we get to the end of the day and, and it's just work. So it's it's great. I feel that in two working parents who especially are both very driven that it's always a debate of who has the more important meeting to that day. You probably both have meetings, but whose meeting could be bumped or moved or like, yeah, you could do it like while you're in the middle of drop off. But tell me how you finally left NSA. I think it was a combination of two things. I was working a lot and all the work, as you know, has to be done inside of a secure building. And so daycare would call and there'd be a sick kid and it'd be really tough to manage. There were times I was bringing a lot sort of home with me, right? I, I would be back at home, but I wouldn't be fully present. And counterterrorism is a tough, a tough line of work, especially at the National Counterterrorism Center, which is a great place. I love the people there. I love the culture and the mission. And then the other piece was, you know, I had about 19 years to go before I could retire. And I thought to myself, can I chart a 19-year career path in the government that I think will keep me engaged and interested and, and have me doing the kinds of things that I want? And my thought was, I don't want to wait until it's too late in my career to leave and, and make a career change. I don't want my value to just sort of be my Rolodex or my understanding of how to do business in, in the government and, and contracts. And I wanted to see if I could go learn something different and take my technical skills and my leadership skills and apply them somewhere else. And so I was like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it in the next couple of years. And right now I'm really feeling like I'm making a tough choice sometimes, right? Between my kids and my, my work. And so I just had this moment of clarity that I was like, all right, this is the time for me to go do this. You know, there was a lot of parameters around what I did, right? I, I wasn't going to turn myself into a green badge and go work in, in a secure building again for you know eight or nine hours a day. But I really wanted some job flexibility, right? I wanted a different work-life balance uh, and I wanted a different kind of experience. And I ended up working for a guy that uh, I met at the agency. He was a contractor and he started a small company. It was fantastic. I learned a ton, really great people, startup culture. But the best of it was is uh, after the kids were in bed at you know 9 p.m., I could fire up the laptop and finish my day, right? Like I didn't have to work 10 contiguous hours a day during the day. I worked as much as I could. I worked from home when I needed to. And pretty much to this day, right? Every evening I'll fire up the laptop and my wife and I'll be watching TV together or something and, and just getting a little work done. And to me, it just feels so much better than doing that and having to do it in an office. 
And then the company sold in less than a year? In less than a year, yeah. We, we got bought by uh, Optiv, which is a great company. I, I learned a whole new world, right? So I went from a startup world to a big commercial sales company, private equity owned. But in a very short amount of time, got a big crash course and succeeding in there. But it was sort of a combination of two things uh, that had me leave Optiv. When I left the government, I didn't want to have anything to do with government. So I said I wanted to work commercial stuff. And that's exactly what they did. They had me working commercial projects. Uh, somebody else actually did all of our, uh, kind of led all our government efforts. But the reality was after a little while, it kind of started losing satisfaction. Because I'd work on some great project and then I'd be like, Vimesh, you know, about eight months ago, you were using your skills to catch terrorists, right? And now you're helping a media company sell more movies or, or, or whatever. And not to trivialize, right? That, that, that's all important work. And it just so happened at the, you know, at the right place at the right time, a, a former colleague from NCTC called and said, hey, this is a company called Worldwide Technology. I'm doing some consulting with them. I think you might really enjoy this company. And it was like the day after that I was like, man, I, I think I need to be more connected to that public service mission. And so at WWT, I, I, you know, I work in uh, defense and intelligence exclusively now. No, I'm not a government employee, but I still get to feel like I contribute to the mission. It's, very, it's really rewarding. And then, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great company to be with. And you're part of INSA. Can you explain what INSA is? I feel like, I don't know if their marketing's better or they targeted me, but all of a sudden I see all about INSA all the time. INSA is the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. So it's like a trade association focused solely on the needs and the constituency serving the intelligence community. So you've got FCA and you're probably familiar with them. INSA is IC focused. And I came across them because I knew a couple of folks that were there. WWT joined INSA and uh, I enjoyed some of the events and helped on a couple of the programming efforts. And uh, last year or the year before, uh, they had a call for uh, nominees to join the board. So I, I threw my name in there and uh, got to join the board. And that's been a fantastic experience as well, both trying to understand better the members in the INSA community and better understand and articulate the needs of the intelligence community and try and bring that sort of commercial government bridge together. So it's been a, a wonderful experience. I've met so many great people. I feel like I'm a tiny fish there. Like uh, I almost have imposter syndrome, frankly, but uh, you do? I, I really enjoyed working with everyone there. What committee are you on? Jeff, I hope you're listening to this. I am on the Information Technology Oversight Committee, <laughs> which is the best committee. <laughs> and I state that at every one of our committee meetings. I chaired the committee starting this year. And every meeting, I state that at the beginning of the committee, that we are the best committee on INSA. What does that committee do? We are responsible for oversight of the IT and cybersecurity aspects of INSA. So we work with the INSA staff to make sure that the IT needs are met properly. We've got a lot of experts, a lot of cybersecurity expertise in the INSA community. So we leverage some of that to make sure that the INSA office and business IT, email, web server, all that kind of stuff is set up to good modern cybersecurity hygiene. You've been on the board one year? Yeah, so January is my second year. So I'm into, I'm into my second year right now. And what was the intent behind the 8A showcase? And is it 8A and women-owned this year? What's the thrust this year? I believe it is 8A and, and women-owned. The intent behind the showcase was twofold. <laughs> Here's what we were really trying to do. One, there's a lot of amazing small companies with amazing talent that fuel and drive the IC. We wanted to showcase some of the great things that are happening. 
And we wanted to provide opportunities for these companies to network and connect, connect cross agency, right? A lot of great stuff. A company might have started one agency, uh, but really has some great stuff that might be applicable somewhere else. The second piece was really to celebrate the contributions of minorities in the intelligence community. The IC is really hard to work in, right? It's really hard to start a business in. You, you probably know, right? Because that's what you do. And so every day, people choose to do this. They choose to contribute to national security. They choose to solve hard problems and go after our adversaries and defend against them. We wanted to celebrate that, right? We wanted to learn more about why people choose this, why people grind it out in this industry. And so we had a little bit of a twofold agenda, right? And, and that's kind of the way we structured the event as well. And I think it was well-received. I'm really looking forward to uh, this year's event as well. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to, to be on it. It was pretty exciting to get the chance to sell our story. We, I think we had five minutes to speak. The shorter the presentation, the harder it is to actually prepare. It was exactly what story are we telling? How do we want to tell our story? And then how did we want to stand out? We, of course, wore Nyla Blue. And I think we were one of the few companies where it was two women presenting. I remember your presentation. I think you guys did a great job. So I hope it was worthwhile for you guys. What advice would you give your younger self? Like, what advice do you give to people who are coming to you in their 20s and they say, I want to be like you? What I say a lot right now is relationships matter. In the business world, I see it a lot more. If you can offer something to someone and build a relationship, it'll pay you back. A lot of times, uh, folks that are just coming into it, right, they're sort of kind of focused on themselves and trying to figure out how to how to make it work. But if you have a moment, you can take a step back and and focus on relationships every step of the way. Uh, that's probably the best advice I, I'd be giving right now. I have a friend who's very good at sales. She's at a competitor company from WWT. <laughs> but she taught me, always be providing value, right? So not only at work, do you want to provide value, but even though she her end goal is to sell, it's really to, of course, sell something of value to the person. But you can, even when you are in the not power position, you can provide something of value to the person. Maybe it's information, a different perspective, information or something or, or a relationship or connection that they needed as well. And I think that relates back to your idea of even in mentorship. While you are seeking a mentor, if you're young and you're seeking someone who's a mentor, you yourself actually have value and perspective. And think about that too. Like what can you give to your mentor that they might really value from you coming in the room and having that discussion with you? I'm a big reader. Is there a book? Well, you said you always have books on hand. Right now, I am reading a lot of Harvard Business Review. A lot of times I can consume things in little snippets now. And the neat thing about HBR is there's always five or six really interesting articles that directly relate to something you're doing that you never thought about. And so instead of like seeking a book, I sort of let that magazine help me figure out what, what matters. The other piece that I really find fun is there's articles about things that are completely outside of my field or my purview. And I read those too. And like this last month, there were there were two articles. One was like a whole study on sales and I'm in a sales organization and about how sense-making is really important. So instead of just giving your customers or potential customers information, can you help them make sense of it? And if you can, you can improve the buying process and the decision-making process for them to much better experience. There's another article about, is your leadership team actually leading? Are you just answering 
the emails of the day, right? And it was like the business just going and you're trying to like kind of keep everything going. Are you taking a step back and trying to understand like, what do you need on your team? What skills do you need and what do you have and what are you doing about it? And that was a good one. My boss and I actually talked about that a little bit and, and we kind of walked through of like, well, what do we think about this, right? How do we feel? Tell us something about yourself that might surprise us. My day's in front of people a lot. And so most people would take me for an extrovert. But man, I really enjoy that sort of quiet solitude. And deep down inside, I'm probably a little bit of an introvert because at the end of a particularly extroverted day, I am mentally and physically exhausted. People go, really? You just seem to love this stuff. And I was like, that's kind of tiring sometimes. I'm very much the same. I came back from a conference and slept for two days. While I was at the conference, I'm on. I think that's what I love about sort of social media or an online presence or communicating that way is I don't have to give myself as much to keep a communication or a relationship going. I like the asynchronous of texting or uh, email as well. I've really enjoyed talking to you. This has been a really fun opportunity and a a fun conversation. I feel like we went way back to when we first met uh, all the way to kind of some modern day current events. So I I thank you so much for, for doing this with me. Yeah, I'm really glad. Uh, It's been so long, I think, since I've actually really chatted with you. And I just remember you. I wouldn't use the word nemesis. (laughs) Thank you for not using that word. You probably did use it back then, though. I mean, I'm a I'm a contractor and you are you come across whether you are or not, you come across as supremely confident. And (laughs) I think I will thank you for that as well. (laughs) I enjoyed our discussions and sparring and you always let me in the room and And then I do, I still remember the body language discussion. I came in your office, I completely dropped by, right? It was unprepared. It was just off the cuff of you saying, and I think you did print out an article and point to it and or give it to us. I love that you you go into everything 100%. There's no uh, tepid vimish, right? If you're in it, you're all in it. And you're you're giving both to... uh, all the people who've worked with you and to the government and working on the problems. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Please be sure to share it with friends and family. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn under the Outspoken Podcast. Thanks again and chin up, heads up, eyes forward.